you to take your Bibles and open them to uh, Matthew chapter 18. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have one uh, right there in the pew for you. And if you're using that Bible, it's on page 823. We're going to be reading Matthew 18 and preaching from it. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have had a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold 
with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's be seated as we pray. God, our heart as we come to this passage is to hear what you have said, to understand what you have put here in your word. I don't want to say anything that's just my thinking. We don't want to think anything that are just our thoughts kind of squeezing this text into what we already believe. We really want to open our hearts and minds to what you have to say. So we pray that your spirit would be working we open ourselves to his, his active presence in us and amongst us. Teach us by your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. In every, every healthy Christian church, you'll find a disproportionate amount of two types of people. The first type are those who an old preacher named Charles Spurgeon called the poor, obscure, and little gifted. I like that phrase, but it's a phrase for those whom the streams of society tend to kind of pass over or look beyond. Perhaps they're in that situation because of the hand they've been dealt. So maybe it's a young widow or a single mom or someone who is raised in a, in a very hard situation. Or they could be in that category because they're just uh, those who are a little bit out of step with how society typically walks. They're not the smooth talkers, the fancy dressers, the, the, the cool people in the room that control the room. A bit maybe socially awkward or, or at least different from how society expects them to behave. Or maybe they're in this category because they're vulnerable. Because of what's going on in their lives, they're just a little unsure in their footing or, or just establishing themselves and who they are. For this, for this first category of people, we'll use a phrase that Jesus used in the passage we just read, the little ones. People who are easily passed over, the people who Spurgeon called the poor, obscure, and little gifted. 
they are disproportionately represented in our church. And this isn't actually something that we mask over or try to hide. It's actually something we rejoice in. We are glad for it. This is who we are. We are a group of people who are just a little different. And if you know me very well, you know I fit right into that category. But there's a second group of people that are disproportionately represented in churches, and that is sinners. Sometimes we think church is a place where the, uh, the holy and pious gather to show off their righteousness to one another and to encourage each other for being so righteous. But really, a church is more like a place where one beggar is showing another beggar where to find bread. I think of that famous Groucho Marx line, any club that would have me for a member I wouldn't want to be a part of. In a certain sense, that's us with the church, right? I, I am a sinner. If people knew what goes on in my heart and what comes into my mind and what motivates me at times, or would they really want me to be the pastor of this church, to be a member of this church? And that's how we all feel. We all together are sinners here. The church is made up of the little ones and the sinners disproportionately represented in this body. How to, then the question for us today is how do we interact with people who are poor, obscure, little gifted? How do we interact with people who are sinners? And how do we do it within the context of the church? Chapter 18 is a sermon that Jesus gave. It's the fifth sermon he gives, fifth big chunk of sermon he gives in the book of Matthew. And this one particularly, he's going to be addressing how do we interact with these types of people. So verses 5 through 14, he's going to be talking about how we interact with the little ones. And then in verses 15 through 35, he's talking about how we interact with sinners. But all of this is not just kind of in society, kind of a general question. So it's a question about how we interact together as a church. Look down in verse 17. He says, if he refuses to listen to, listen to them, tell it to the church. That phrase, the church, or that word, the church, is only used in all of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's only used twice. Both of them by Matthew. Once in chapter 16. And then here in chapter 18. The reason is. Is because the church hadn't been established yet. Right? The church is established after Jesus ascends into heaven. So him giving instructions to the disciples. About how to, uh, how to behave as a church now. Before the church has even been established. Would be like... Uh, stumbling across, you know, a great author's notes from a novel that she was preparing to write, that that novel went on to become this great best-selling novel. But before it was even written, you have those notes and what she was thinking and why she was devising. You'd be excited to find this. Here it is. Let's figure out what the blueprint was. And that's what Jesus is doing here in chapter 18. So as a church, as the church, how do we interact? With the poor, the obscure, the little gifted. How do we interact with sinners? 
Well, this sermon that Jesus gives begins with a, uh, a start that's, it would be comical if it weren't so sad. The disciples are getting together and they're having some sort of conversation, most likely, which one of us is going to be the greatest elsewhere in the gospel. You know, hey, who's going to sit on the right hand? Who's going to sit on the left hand of Jesus? Who's his, you know, general? Who's his captain? Who's his lieutenant? You know, let's figure these things out. The kingdom's coming. Who's great? And so they go to him and they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's just completely the wrong question. It's like a hockey player saying, who's the prettiest on the team? Or, or it's like a, a, a literary student asking her professor, how do I become the most cliched writer? Like, by asking the question, you prove that you just don't get it. You remember in chapter 5, his first sermon that he gave, Jesus started out first line in his sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And just a few lines in, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> Who's the greatest? They've missed it. Missed it entirely. And so Jesus decides it's time for an object lesson for them. There's a child standing nearby, and he brings the child and places this child in their midst. Now, in order for us to see the lens correctly, we can't actually look, through it, look at it through a 21st century lens of children. Because there's been no, no time in history where children have been more doted on and more esteemed than our society we, uh, we give them the best food, the best clothes, the best education, the best, best sports training. We document their every success, their every, uh, every time they reach the next level of whatever. We document, we take pictures, we video it. That's our society. I'm not saying anything good or bad about that, but that's how we look at it. That is not how they viewed children back then. In fact, I, I came across one scholar who said this. A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society. Subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, only to be looked after, not to be looked up to. So, Jesus takes this child, who the disciples didn't even notice likely, standing over there, and places him in their midst. He says, you want to know who's the greatest? The one who is humble, like this child, is the greatest. Well, he does say that in verse 4. But that's not the first thing he says. Did you see the first thing he says? They're asking who's the greatest. But look what he says in verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn... Something needs to change in these disciples. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They're sitting there having this discussion about who's the greatest. He says, who's the greatest? How about just getting in? 
where you guys are at, the question you should be concerned about right now is whether you're even getting into the kingdom of heaven. You need to become like this child. You need to turn. There is something that needs to fundamentally change here in the way you're approaching this. Well, what do we mean, become like child, become like children? Of course, we can make that mean all sorts of things, right? But Jesus explains in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child. Think of children and humility. When we're talking about the humility of a child, we're not necessarily talking about their character. In fact, in their character, because of what they've inherited from Adam, from from their parents, they're actually quite self-centered and looking for all their needs to be met. When Jesus talks about them being humble, he's talking about them being positionally humble. That means they are in a position where they're completely dependent upon others. They're not given any seats of honor, especially in that day. People aren't looking to them and saying, how do we live our life? No, they are kind of at the bottom rung, and yet totally dependent on others. Positionally humble. And Jesus is saying, we need to see ourselves in the same way. We need to see our position in the same humble way as a child. In these first four verses, he's, he's framing what will come in the rest of his sermon. He's saying there is a posture of our heart that we must all embrace. That we are all broken, needy misfits. Now, I was thinking about, uh, I was thinking about this, and it made me think of um, when I was a camp counselor. I had a, a a young boy who was in going into second grade, and he was precocious when it came to math. He understood all sorts of things mathematically that no six-year-old should understand, or seven-year-old should understand. But he was going into second grade. And so there were things that he occasionally got wrong that were pretty obvious. But he didn't know that. And his friends didn't know that. So he got to show off for all his peers, all his math knowledge, and all how great he was. But as I looked on in university, I knew he was making a fool of himself a quarter of the time. Even though it was pretty impressive how well this kid knew math. I think sometimes I'm like that boy. I think just because I can do long division here in second grade, that there's something great about me. But when God looks, he sees it all so clearly. The reality is I'm a sinner. And oftentimes my motives aren't pure even when I think they are. And my wisdom often errs, is confused, I often have, have lapses in judgment or don't understand a situation as well as I think I do. I'm actually pretty broken. I'm a little one. I'm a child. And yeah, I'm, I want to use the gifts that God has given me to serve the church, and I'm eager to do that, as we all should be. But I, do, I ought not do it like that boy in second grade who thinks, because I have a few gifts, boy, am I great. 
Rather, God's taught me some things, but I have a long way to go, and I'm on this journey together with the rest of us. You see that? That's what Jesus is calling us to be. That's who he's calling. That's a posture of our heart we are to have. It's the starting point for how we relate to one another. So when we start to think about how do we relate to the person in our midst who is one of the poor, the obscure, the little gifted, or how do we relate to somebody who sins within our midst, as we think about it, it starts with this heart posture. Of I need to turn and become like children. Positional humility, understanding where we are as small, unwise, confused by sin. And God is the one who's strong and in control. He is our Savior. We look to Him in faith. So, that's at where Jesus begins. Posture of the heart. But then you see in verse 5, He just totally switches gears on them. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now he's not talking about posture, but how we relate to little ones. Now he does say child again there, but then every point after that, you'll see in verse 6, he switches to little ones, and every point after that he switches to little ones. What does he mean, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me? The child is a, a, a subset of a bigger category of those who are what he calls in Matthew 25, the least of these my brothers, what he calls throughout the rest of them, little children. So children certainly fall into that category as people are vulnerable, needy, and that day overlooked by society. But it expands to be anyone who's in a position of need. Those who've been dealt the hard hand. Those who society kind of looks on as weird. Those who are vulnerable. In fact, he says almost the same thing as whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Later on in Matthew 25 when he says, whatever you do to the least of these my brothers, you do it unto me. How do we treat those who are the little ones in our midst? Well, Jesus says this. Imagine, if you will, I know it stretches it a bit, but that here we are on Sunday morning gathered together, getting ready for our service, and Jesus walks in. I'm not just talking about Rob Barber when he had the big beard. I mean, actually, Jesus. He walks in. How would you want to treat him? What, in your, what would you want to do for Jesus if he were to walk in? And Jesus says, when a single mom walks in, treat her that way. When the person with a disability comes in, treat him that way. When the person who's reeling because of the crisis in their life walks in, treat him that way. We receive them. We welcome them. Why? Because in our own hearts, we know that's who we are too. This is a collection of people who are all alike broken. But he doesn't stop there and just say, receive them. He goes on to say something more in verse 6 and 7. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It is better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. He says, don't, te- don't tempt them. Now, what prompts this? All sorts of things could have prompted it, but I, th- I think at, at the very least, we know how this story started. There's a child standing over here, And Jesus' 12 disciples over here, overlooking this child, are having a conversation about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The impressionable child over there, and they don't even notice, they don't even care of the kind of influence they can be having on this child as they have this conversation. So he's brought the child in the midst of them. He says, you need to receive this child. First, you need to become like this child, heart posture. Now you need to receive the little ones, people like this child, but also be aware of what you are doing. Don't create obstacles for these young, vulnerable ones, people who might be inclined towards sin. Don't create obstacles for them that could cause them to stumble. Yes, the example is a child, but the fact that he expands it to whoever, whoever, and little children, little children shows that he's talking about something more. Any who are vulnerable and susceptible to sin within our midst, we must show particular care to. That would certainly be a child, but it might be someone recovering from an addiction to some substance. It might be someone who's battling sexual sin. It might be someone who is inclined toward bitterness or gossip. And the question Jesus asks us is, are we aware that such people are around us? And do we live accordingly? There are new believers in our midst. There might be someone who I would call a revived believer. They just came out of a really dark season and they're just struggling to get their feet back under them. They're in our midst. And if we're going to be a healthy church, the kind of church Jesus wants us to be, he says, open your heart. Welcome them and be aware of what you're doing. What movie you take a group to see, how you dress, how you speak, the actions you take around them. Be aware that there are vulnerable little ones in our midst and live accordingly. He suggests then that to show blatant disregard for the soul of another such that you have no qualm about leading them to dabble in sin that could destroy them, shows that we actually have no regard for Christ. Hear that? To show a blatant disregard for the soul of another, such that we have no qualm leading them to dabble in sin that could destroy them, shows that we have no regard for Christ. Remember Jesus said, receive them, you receive me. Be careless with their soul, I think. And you're actually being careless in your attitude toward me. We have a little one amongst us. That's great. 
And so, God says, or Jesus says, because this is a reflection of, of how you view me, if you have that careless attitude, it will be better for you if a giant millstone was linked to your neck and you were tossed into the sea and it scored a brutal drowning than the judgment you would face. So don't, don't tempt the little ones. And then we have verses um, 8 and 9, which seem to focus on ourself, right? Or they do focus on ourself. Like, your right eye causes you sin, right hand causes you sin, cut it off. You've heard that before in the Sermon on the Mount. It might seem like it's, it's kind of randomly dropped in here, though radical teaching, it's random teaching drawn in. But, but then think about where it's placed. So right before he's saying, be careful that you don't cause someone to sin. And then right after he tells the story of this little sheep, which the point is that the Father who is in heaven doesn't want any of these little ones to perish. So this, this teaching about how I guard my own sin is sandwiched between two teachings about being careful about how others are affected by my actions, or how others are affected, or, or how my actions can cause others to stumble. So, so these verses here aren't just saying, hey, guard your life, but they're actually saying, guard yourself as a means of guarding those others with whom you have influence. So yes, out of concern for my own soul, I need to take care, be on guard against sin. But the sin that I commit actually has an impact on the whole church. There isn't any sin done in isolation. And so, not just out of concern for my own soul, but out of concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I must take heed lest I fall into sin. We must take sin seriously because it affects us, but we must take sin seriously because it affects the souls of others. And then in verses 10 through 14, Jesus concludes this important teaching on how we receive little ones or how we interact with the poor, obscure, and little gifted. And he begins by telling people this interesting bit of information. He talks about their angels. God has angels who look out over us, who are representing him, us to him. And so he says, the angels of these little ones have access face to face with my Father in heaven. So the highest ranking officials in the celestial army, when they get to choose their order and who they look after, they choose those who are lowly of heart, those who are needy, those who are broken. That's who they choose. And we who tread this earthly sod ought we not do likewise. Show particular honor, particular care to those members amongst us who have the most need. 
And Jesus, who began with an object lesson, concludes with a story of a shepherd who is herding his sheep. Here they are, round about, and one sheep wanders off from the flock. Now the 99 who remain are in a safe place. The shepherd has led them to a good pasture. They're in a good, safe place. They're staying together as a herd. But this one sheep that wanders off, by virtue of wandering off, is in a very vulnerable position. A little one, so to speak. Needy. Could be because of their own hard-heartedness, or just with sheep, it just might be a random, a random occurrence, but nonetheless in a vulnerable position. And what is the shepherd's heart? It's to go after the one that's in the vulnerable position and go and rescue it so it does not perish and to bring it back to the safety of the 90 and 9. So the angels, the highest ranking angels, want to look after the poor and needy. And the shepherd himself, Jesus, says, I prioritize those who are vulnerable, those who are in a desperate situation, and I go after them in a unique way. Should we not do the same? So what is the summary of how we are to interact with those who are the little ones in our midst? First, it begins with our heart posture. We need to see that we ourselves are one of the little ones. Secondly, we receive them warmly and genuinely as we would receive Christ. Third, we be careful not to tempt them either by putting a stumbling block in their way or even the stumbling block of our own sinfulness. And finally, we give them a position of greater honor, greater import. We look to them particularly within our midst. That is how God calls us as a church to interact with the poor, the obscure, and the little gifted. Those who realize they are broken and needy will deal in a particular way with those who are broken and needy in our midst. And then he goes on to say, those who realize they are sinners deal in a particular way with those who are sinners. And that's what we'll look at the remainder of the passage, verses 15 through 35. How do we deal with sin? The first thing he says in verses 15 to 20 is that we actually deal with sin. We don't pretend like everything's okay, wink, and allow something that's destroying people to continue on as if it's not. But, he says, when we deal with it, we have a principle that says we keep the circle as small as possible as we deal with it. Think about when the way the world deals with somebody treating them wrong, a sin against them. They go and they talk to everybody except for the person who did the wrong, right? But God says in the church it should be exactly the opposite. You don't talk to anybody except the one person who's done the wrong. Now, before we get too far into this, I just want to just remind you of the backdrop of Scripture. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, hey, be careful. 
Be careful because you're quick to see specks in other people's eyes, not, not the log in your own eyes. So it says examine yourself before you even start helping with that speck. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about what love is. And love bears all things and believes that all things. So there's a sense of not every little offense. We're keeping track and saying, okay, you did this, 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 and I'm going to bring this, 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 this. It's not a critical spirit that Jesus is talking about here. In 1 Peter 4, it says love covers over a multitude of sins. But there does come a time when a sin is so bothering us that it's, something, it's doing something we have to deal with it, or where it's so dangerous to the soul of that individual or to the soul of our church that it must be dealt with and confronted. And when we do so, when we come to that brother, we do so humbly having examined ourselves. We do so in a spirit of love and gentleness. We do it imperfectly because there's no perfect way to do this. But we go and we confront the sin with them and them alone. Usually, that's all it takes. Now, admittedly, in the initial conversation, usually you'll find some defensiveness. They probably won't react exactly right. But because they have a Holy Spirit in them, over time, that truth that's in their heart is going to bear and marinate upon them. And it's going, there's going to be a softening of that heart. And it'll be dealt with. And we'll have won a brother, which is great. But on the rare occurrence, that person will harden their hearts and not listen and become stiffened in their sin. And the Bible says there's something to do then. It says take one or two others with you and go and address it before. Again, keeping the circle as small as possible. Now, I, I think in these situations and the way churches practice this through the centuries, it's, it's best when it's a pastor or an elder who comes along with you. But the idea here of bringing two or three witnesses, it's got Old Testament precedent, and there, there are a couple safeguards, two safeguards, really, in bringing two or three with. One is, kind of the Old Testament idea is, you don't bring a charge against somebody just because one person thinks it. We want to make sure that whoever's the offended party isn't just trumping these things up or, or kind of blowing things out of proportion. So you bring some godly, wise, mature people along with you, not just your friends who are going to take your side, but godly, mature people who say, you know what, we've looked into this and we see the same things. And so as a safeguard for the offended person that they're not uh, trumpeting these things or trumping these things up on their own, you bring two or three witnesses, right? But also... For the person who is then confronted, in a sense, the offender. It might be easy for them to dismiss out of hand that one person. It might be a close relationship or a friend. I can dismiss them. But when others come and say, we're seeing the same thing, it gives them opportunity to see their own heart and not just dismiss it as a relational conflict. Now, this second phase might take some time not a one-and-done thing. It's asking God again to work in their hearts, being gracious in how you interpret their responses. But ultimately, you're praying and looking for a softening of the heart. And sometimes, even at this point, even after it's been established on the witnesses of two or three, the heart remains hard and stiff. 
At that point, the Bible and Jesus is teaching how we deal with it. It's counter to how we often think. But at that point, still keeping the circle as small as possible, we bring it to the church. We don't bring it to the church so that a bunch of people can cross their arms and cluck their tongues and look down at somebody. Where we can come become self-righteous fault finders and others or we don't bring it to the church so we can stir up the beehive and everybody starts taking sides and throwing barbs at one another that's not why we bring it to the church we bring it to the church so everybody with a spirit of brokenness realizing we ourselves are sinners a spirit of love can begin praying for this brother or sister And those who have a close relationship who may not have been aware of it because it's been dealt with the right way can even call on this brother or sister to repent. Maybe some will even fast and pray in light of the news. Now, we don't repeat it. We don't spread it to anybody else. It's something that stays internal. Again, keeping the circle as small as possible. We don't want to complicate the sin of one by adding our own sin of pride or gossip or whatever else to it. We approach it humbly and lovingly, calling on this brother or sister to repent. And if their heart remains stiff and hard, even in the face of that, Jesus says, look what he says there in verse 16. Sorry, verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What that means is you can't act like, you can't treat them like a believer when the way they're acting shows that they're There's no regard for Christ in their heart. Jesus is saying, look, if you say to them, look, if if your actions are such that you're showing that Christ is not regarding your heart, it wouldn't be right for us to treat you as a member of this believing community because that would be going along with your charade. We would be puppets in this game that could be destructive to your own soul. And so we take the actions of church But you are no longer a member here, and we're encouraging you not to take communion until these things are dealt with. It doesn't mean they're banished and never allowed to come. In fact, just the opposite. If we're treating them as someone who's an unbeliever, well, we welcome unbelievers into our midst. We want, and if you're an unbeliever here, we're glad that you're here. This is a church that we encourage people to come to, ask questions, hear the truth, consider the truth claims. Somebody who's in a hardened state, there's no better place for them to be than in a church that the word is being taught, right? So they're welcomed here. They're loved. They're not shunned. But with a sobriety. A sobriety that says what's going on is serious. In fact, it's so serious that Jesus says something that's a little, uh, for many of us, alarming. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, 
It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. In other words, he says, that what the church does when it properly, properly is key there, when it properly practices church discipline, accords with what's going on in heaven. This is weighty, weighty stuff we're talking about. Something we shouldn't tread on lightly. I've been involved in two situations where it got to the point where somebody was removed from the membership of a church because of their hardness of heart. In both situations, that last action brought about a softening of the heart in the individual. And with time, both individuals, one a man and one a woman, repented and came back. And the church was able with great joy and great love to welcome them back in as if it had never happened in a certain way. They were welcomed in, embraced. They were given that special care of the hundredth lamb coming back to the fold. God's ways are good and we trust his ways, not thinking that we can come up with something better. But I'll also say that if they had not repented, What we had done would not have been a failure. Because what we are doing is actually giving proper witness. We don't want to communicate to someone who's living like an unbeliever that they are an unbeliever or that they are a believer. So we want to give proper witness to them that their actions are significant enough that they need to take stock of their own soul. And we want to witness to the watching world who looks at the church and say to them, look, this is not the way a believer behaves. If somebody's acting like this, it's not just, hey, they sin. We all sin. But if there's this stubborn, hardness, stiff-necked, rebelling against the, the, the exhortations of those around us, if that kind of thing is going on, it's not the way we behave as a covenant community. And so we're witnessing to the individual and to the world of what is truth, where truth tellers and even if they don't repent we have done right if we're telling the truth so how do we deal with sin we're supposed to deal with sin well first thing is we actually deal with it second we keep the circle small it doesn't go church wide thirdly it doesn't go church wide unless there are two or three witnesses that can establish it and that the person's heart remains hardened over time. Fourth, we, we, righteous, we give right witness to them and to the world about what's going on. And five, we keep in mind that what we are doing when we properly administer church discipline accords with what's going on in heaven. So, sin is to be dealt with. But then, and this is important in verses 15 through to 35, It is also to be forgiven. Peter asked the question, so um, how many times do we forgive? Comes up with a big hole number seven. Seven times? Jesus blows it out of the water. Not even close. And then he tells a story of a servant who um, 
who owes his master this massive, massive amount of money. There's different ways of equivalent it, making it equivalent today. It's somewhere between the millions and over a billion dollars that this guy owes, depending on how you figure inflation and all the rest, right? This guy is never going to be able to repay that debt. He can sell his family off as indentured servants, which they would have done in those days. He can sell himself as an indentured servant. No matter what he does, he's never going to be able to pay that debt. And yet he's pleading, would you let me, do, would, would you let me pay it? I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. And do you know what? The amazing thing is the master doesn't just say, okay, I'm not clapping you in irons. I'm actually, he takes pity on the man and forgives this billion-dollar debt the man owes. And Jesus says, and do you know what he does? The same servant who's just had the billion dollars forgiven, he walks out and someone comes along to him who owes him about 20 grand. A lot of money. Somebody owed me 20 grand, I'd want the money. But compared to a billion dollars, not that much. And he's not able to pay. He grabs him by the throat. He says, you'll pay it right now. The story is preposterous. Jesus is intentionally telling a preposterous story. That kind of thing doesn't happen. Somebody who has been forgiven a billion dollars doesn't go moments later choking somebody who owes him 20 grand. It just doesn't happen. And that's the point. Look, if you understand the forgiveness that Jesus has given us, if we understand that, look, the, if I understand just what my sin does to God and the offense that is, it's a billion dollar debt that I could never pay. Because Jesus took pity on my soul, this billion dollar debt has been lifted and I am forgiven. And those who have been forgiven the billion dollar debt are forgivers. We go through our life after that point showering forgiveness on others. The Christian community is to be a community where forgiveness is shown. Lavishly. So though we deal seriously with sin, we are quick to be forgivers. I want to close with a story that kind of brings both these truths, the, the little ones and how we relate to the little ones, and forgiveness together. And it's one I am... I think it's probably uh, close to many of our hearts. Because just this week, right, we heard about this awful shooting in a church in Charleston at Emmanuel AME Church. Now think about the first part of the story. We're in an African-American church. All of us are black. And we've been around for a long time as a church and we've borne the injustices that have been poured upon us through, through the centuries by people with a different skin color than us. We're having a little Bible study in our, in our church. And in comes a somewhat punky looking white 20-something. Dressed not at all how we dress looking not at all how we look, and probably to their intuitive sense, one of the little ones, right? Do you know what they do? They open a seat for him right next to the pastor. And they sit around, and they sing a song together, and they study Mark chapter 4 together. They welcome one of these little ones. That's what the church should be. 
wasn't doing it exactly right. You know what happens. At the end of the Bible study, he stands up, shoots the pastor, the man trying to defend the pastor, then starts shooting everybody. A young man, also in his 20s, stands up and confronts him, not to wrestle the gun away, but to try and talk him down, try and talk him out of shooting people. That man is 20-somethings. His mom is laying on the ground with her five-year-old granddaughter telling her play dead. And the son shot and killed. Shooter thinks he's left everyone dead. The mom and the granddaughter, Felicia Sanders and her granddaughter, survive. The way it works in Charleston is when this man is charged, he's captured, charged, those who have been wronged can come and make a statement. And Felicia Sanders comes. And she says to him, looking through a video in his eyes, she says, we welcomed you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms welcoming the little one. She goes on, you have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts and I will never be the same. But then she ends and says, but we forgive you. One who's been forgiven much is able to forgive. Even $20,000 were able to forgive because we're a community of people who've been changed by that gospel. This is who we are. We welcome and receive the little ones and we forgive. Even as we deal with sin, we forgive. Let's pray. Father, you are our loving shepherd. In some way, every one of us in this room is that 100th lamb that wandered, that you took an interest in, that we would not perish. We are the little ones. We are the sinners. And so may we be a collection of people, not, not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners, a place where we gather together and help those who are weak in our midst, receive them as we'd receive you, deal seriously with sin, but also quick to forgive. In Christ's name, amen.